Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, we left Will Robinson, Dr. Smith, and the robot idly fishing in an alien pool, unaware that within a few yards of them stood the frozen figure of an incredible mechanized monster. Ah, yes, Will. As a youth, I spent many a summer day lazing in the warm sun on the banks of the river, the blue sky overhead, the shimmering water flowing by, the gentle hum of a bee in flight. Ah, yes, a barefoot boy with cheeks of tan. Alert, alert. A moving object attached to line. He's got a big one. Well, pull it in, you idiot. Don't just stand there. Weight of the object exceeds the strength of the line. Restraint should be exercised until there is less resistance. Ah, give me that pole. Let an expert show you how this should be done. Caution and patience is advised. Caution and patience. Quiet, you mumbling mass of metal. I'll handle this. He's right, Dr. Smith. If you're not careful, the fish will get away. Nonsense. Our finny friend is practically in the frying pan now. A release of line tension is advised. Give him some slack, Dr. Smith. Ease off gradually. I know what I'm doing. Give up, you brute. You've met your match. Object fish has eluded capture. He got away, sir. Not even the greatest expert could have landed that monster. He must have weighed 100 pounds. All your fish got away. Are you suggesting that my failure is due to a lack of ability? Well, you're the only one who didn't catch anything. As you have said, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Indeed. Rather than bear any further insults, I shall return to the Jupiter too. Good day to you both. Oh, we didn't mean anything, Doctor. Honest, we didn't. Ha! Huh. He did not get away. I released him. We might as well go, too. Dr. Smith suffers the injury of embarrassment. He will recover. Uh, I guess you're right. What's wrong? You sure are acting funny. Warning. Immediate danger. What kind of danger? My sensors will not accept the possibility of its existence. Golly! Welcome back, folks, for episode 20 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. 
Kurt, today we're talking about the 20th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled War of the Robots. And I'm excited about this one. We get two robots for the price of one. Not bad, eh? No, not at all, especially considering who that other robot is and his connection with the B-9 robot. It's quite a pedigree. It really is. So, Well, we have quite a few production notes to go through before we begin with the story, so let me get started with that. This is 42-year-old Barney Slater's fifth script for Lost in Space. Erwin Allen and Tony Wilson wanted a story built around the robot, similar to the way Mr. Nobody was built around Penny, or Return from Outer Space was a Will-centric episode. They gave this job to Slater, and I think his story has a lot to offer, including some great themes, leading-edge sci-fi concepts, some serious character development for the robot, and his relationship with his family, and of course, some great lines for Dr. Smith. Some of the dialogue between the robot and the robotoid, however, has been criticized as less than impressive, but how pithy can you expect a robot to be? Cushman blames some of that on the fact that Slater's script went into production without Tony Wilson's usual polishing, probably due to the unusual time constraints that were at play during this production. 56-year-old Soby Martin is back for his sixth of 14 directing jobs on this episode, and I think it ranks as one of his more appreciated efforts. He shot it from January 24th through the 31st of 1966, that's six days. We'd mentioned before that Lost in Space was falling seriously close to missing its delivery dates to CBS, and now the issue had reached a crisis. In order to claw back some breathing room, the show's producers attempted an ambitious effort to film two episodes simultaneously. The War of the Robots, production number 8521, was one of them. The other one, production 8520, was the penny-centric episode, The Magic Mirror. It's interesting to read how they did this. Robots used the production team normally assigned to Lost in Space, while Magic Mirror was assigned another director, Nathan Juran, and some of the production crew from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. The two teams would play a tightly coordinated shell game with soundstage space throughout the six days of filming, with little room for error or delays. Robots wound up finishing its shoot first, so it was actually broadcast on February 9th, 1966, a week before Magic Mirror, even though it had a later production number. Robots would also earn a summer repeat on the 15th of June, 1966. The two-for-one shooting scheme also affected the casting for these episodes. Robots featured all the regular characters except for Penny, who was busy shooting Magic Mirror, while that episode would have no appearance of Will and the Robot. This made sense given how much any filming day had to be dedicated to school hours for the two child actors. Wow, it must have been a real circus uh, behind the scenes there. And I I bet associate producer Jerry Briskin, the guy who was always tugging at his collar, (laughs) he must have been a total bundle of nerves during this double feature production. Yes, he was was probably breaking out in hives. (laughs) Now to our guest stars. The Robotoid was realized using the iconic Robbie the Robot costume from the 1956 MGM classic Forbidden Planet, designed like our own robot by art director Robert Kinoshita. Robbie, by the way, will reappear in a third season episode, The Condemned of Space, but not as the Robotoid, but as a cybernetic prison guard. Wow. Hey, you know, I was remembering uh, Robbie appearing in that future episode while watching this episode, and at first I thought, danger, danger, continuity error, danger, danger. (laughs) But 
you know, I thought they should have used a different robot, but then I was thinking to myself, hey, Robbie is probably a standard robotoid model for his mysterious masters. And they said they always needed new people to experiment on. Now, what if the experiments that they were doing were freezing humans for prison ships, like that later episode? So, yeah, maybe it's a different robot playing the same model robotoid, but for the same mysterious masters. They just keep you know, they keep them around guarding the frozen prisoners after they perfected their cryonic freezing process. You know, it's, it's just a theory, but it's kind of a cool way to explain it, don't you think? <laughs> I think it's a good theory. But I also think a lot of TV shows couldn't resist nabbing Robbie. I mean, I think he shows up even on an episode of Columbo at some point. <laughs> He's just such a cool looking robot, isn't he? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, inside Robbie for this episode was Eldon Hansen. Not much is known about him. The Robotoid's voice is uncredited on screen, but there are various sources that give it to an actor named Ali O'Toole or to the voice of Mr. Nobody, William Bramley. In fact, IMBD, I think, lists both of them, which is confusing. Listening to it, however, I'm convinced it was Bramley doing that voice, and if so, I think he's a much better fit for this part than for Mr. Nobody. Mm -hmm. Also uncredited is Hal John Norman, playing the voice of what the script names as the dog-faced alien. I did like his voice for the role, but no barking. <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought he looked more like a bear myself. You know, I think that's where the other half of the bear suit went. They just painted it white. And, <laughs> <you know. laughs> hey, I like that theory, too. Okay. Well, after all that, let's get on with the story. Act 1 starts, as always, with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. In this teaser, we start with Dr. Smith, Will, and the robot enjoying a relaxing afternoon fishing by the bank of a pond. And I like the Tom Sawyer-style cane poles that all three were using, because that's how I learned how to fish. Dr. Smith is sitting comfortably on a nice rock between a seated Will and the standing robot, reminiscing about his own childhood summer fishing memories. Ah, when he was just a barefoot boy with cheeks of tan... (laughs) It's cute, but I got the impression from some of the cutaways of Will that he might have heard these tales before. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the robot alerts the others that he's got a bite, and from the look of it, it's a keeper, so to speak. Dr. Smith instantly turns pro-angler critic and starts to badger the robot to pull the fish in. Well, don't just stand there. Pull it out, you idiot! (laughs) But the robot advises caution and restraint, lest that brute break the line. Smith loses all patience and grabs the pole out of the robot's claws so the expert can show them how it's all done. Despite the robot's repeated urging for Dr. Smith to be patient and not try to land the fish too quickly, Smith ignores the warnings and starts to pull even harder. Uh Uh-oh. Quiet, you mumbling mass of metal. I'll handle this. That's when Will chimes in, telling him to give the fish some slack, but Dr. Smith's having none of it. Nonsense. Our Benny friend is practically in the frying pan now. Mm. (laughs) He's determined to show that fish he's met his match. But that's just what we see thanks to some nice stock footage that little rainbow trout evade capture and get off the hook. (laughs) Of course, that causes Smith to lose his footing and... Yup! and land bottom first back on the rock he was sitting on before. The robot announces that the fish has eluded capture, and I think I detected a little I told you so in the robot's tone. Will adds the obvious, he got away, sir. Not even the greatest expert could have landed that monster. He must have weighed 
A hundred pounds. Will can't resist rubbing it in, pointing out that all his fish got away. Smith, of course, takes umbrage at the suggestion that his lack of success is due to any lack of ability. But then the robot also gets in on the fun. As you have said, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And Dr. Smith's had enough now and decides, rather than to suffer further abuse, he'll take his marbles, or at least his fishing pole, and go home. But before he departs, he adds, He did not get away. I released him. (laughs) Will smiles at this, and I think I caught the robot smiling, too. I know I was. Now, we might think we know what kind of episode this is based on this beginning, but we're going to see this one take a turn for the sinister, aren't we, Kurt? Oh, yeah. Will tells the robot they might as well head back to the Jupiter as well, since it looks like they've caught their limit anyway. As they pack up their gear and start back, the robot adds that even though Dr. Smith has suffered some injured pride, he will recover. Oh yeah, well, I'm usually about as successful as fishing as Dr. Smith is. (laughs) In fact, I've only fished for rainbow trout once in my entire life, and at that time I actually hooked not a 100-pounder, but a 155-pounder. Swear to God, this is a true story. I'm not exaggerating one ounce. No, really, I'm serious. I even took a picture of it. Did I never told you this story? No, I got to see that picture. I'll have to dig out the photo for you sometime. It shows me with the pole and the hook and the very tippy tip of my thumb. <laughs> I somehow managed to hook myself casting that fly. It didn't hurt. It's just, it just caught my skin and it didn't even bleed. But I can honestly say I caught my weight fishing that day. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> you do have the picture though, right? To prove oh, yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, I sure do. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good. A few steps down the trail, the robot freezes. He drops his fishing gear, oh, and the fish. Then he begins waving his arms wildly. But at first, he isn't even saying his normal warning, warning, or danger, danger. He's so apparently disturbed by whatever his sensors have detected that he's actually speechless for just a moment. And I got the impression from his reaction that if he wore underpants, they'd need changing. Yeah, and those oil stains don't come out too easy. Mm Mm-mm. Will asks him why he's acting funny, and he finally announces, Warning! Immediate danger! But what kind? Because neither Will nor do we see anything threatening yet. Not even any hairy, bear-suited beast lumbering out of that... (laughs) Out of that brush this time. With a missing bear head. (laughs) (laughs) The music starts to grow menacing. The robot replies that his sensors will not accept the possibility of its existence. That causes Will to exclaim, golly and drop his fishing pole too as our young castaway is looking around for the trouble the camera follows him back stepping right into a clump of tall bushes Uh uh-oh where we see before will does what must have our robot in a near state of panic Robotoid. Of course, no matter how hard we're yelling, turn around, Will, he backs right dead into that mechanical man. And it startles the boy because when he turns to see it, his eyes are as wide as saucers. Then we all get a really good close-up look at the machine. And the camera does this really neat foot-to-head pan-up of the Robotoid, which I thought was great. Who said Sobe couldn't be creative? And it's standing there mute and unmoving, but don't be fooled. We can tell right away this is as dangerous as the robot has warned because that Bernard Herman music tracked again from the day the earth stood still, and this time it's your favorite malevolent Gortz theme, Kurt. <laughs> it's so creepy that it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. 
How do you like that whole reveal? Oh, wow. Let's just say I need to change my underwear as well, but not for poop. I was orgasmic. (laughs) I mean, that music is superb. It's literally made for that exact kind of scene. And the last time I got those goosebumps was actually seeing Gort make his grand entrance on Earth. It was Mm -hmm. was fantastic. Wonderful. I loved it. Now, I also liked the extended reaction shot that Sobe did next. It was an overhead view looking from behind our robot with his arms extended as if he's ready to fire his electrical bolts and Will slowly backing away from the robotoid towards our robot. We're three minutes into this act and the mood has gone from lighthearted to deadly peril at hyperspeed. Will catches his breath, and then seeing that the robotoid isn't making any threatening moves, he walks back towards it and says to it, Boy, you sure gave me a scare. Hmm, me too. Getting no reply, he quickly determines that this machine is deactivated or broken, but the robot continues to caution that there's still great danger. Will's not worried because he says this machine hasn't been used in years. Based on Dick Tufeld's voice performance, we can tell our robot is still agitated as he cautions Will that there still is danger and it is not just a machine. It is a robotoid. Now, that was an interesting nomenclature, robotoid. Have you ever heard that phrase before, that word? (laughs) No, but I love the way that this is going to be a recurring theme with this robot. Uh, Me too. Will's not listening, and despite our robot's warning, he starts to investigate the alien machine closer. The robot again warns him to... Touch nothing. Repeat, touch nothing. (laughs) And I was wondering, why is Will disregarding the robot's warnings, Kurt? Oh, uh, because he's a brat and he doesn't (laughs) obey his babysitter any more than I did when I was his age. You know, when I was a boy, I had tan cheeks also, just like Smith did. Only my cheeks were tan from spankings for acting stupid, just like Will is doing right now. But I'll save those stories for another time because who could compete with this suspense? Will is literally playing with firepower he is he's certainly inherited a little bit of his dad's know-it-all bravado hasn't he (laughs) will presses on saying he just wants to put a loose retro stat wire whatever that is back in place but that doesn't seem to make any difference the robotoid is just as still as a statue will seems to give up on the idea of tampering further with the machine for the moment the robot is also relieved for the moment. He tells Will that in this case, failure may be considered a success, which causes Will to sarcastically reply, thanks a lot. (laughs) They might as well get back to the camp, which makes the robot happy, adding that by giving up any further attempts to reactivate the machine, Will has acted with wisdom. Hmm. But I don't think he's done. (laughs) I don't think he's given up yet. The two depart the area, but as they walk out of frame, the camera lingers on that apparently inoperative robotoid. And this was another very effectively shot sequence, I thought. The sinister Gort theme returns as the... as the camera slowly tracks in closer towards the machine's head. Then we hear the sound of mechanical activity beginning and some electronic components in the robotoid's transparent brain section begin to come to life. As this extended teaser nears its close, we get a close-up of a panel on the machine's lower torso that snaps open to expose a weapon which fires a laser blast that a nearby dead bush... And the bush explodes in a flash of flame. I guess we know who's fired the opening salvo in this War of the Robots, eh, Kurt? 
Oh yeah, and not only is the music the same as the day the Earth stood still, but so is the robotoid action. Gort does the same exact thing when he first appears in the movie, only it's his helmet visor that opens up and shoots the heat ray that disintegrates a tank, a cannon, and several guns as the Earthlings flee in terror, so it's, it's very frightening. It is. Well, we'll have to wait until we return from the opening titles to find out what happens next. When we return from the first break, Will and the robot arrive back outside the Jupiter 2 with their catch of the day in claw. Maureen is delighted to have fresh fish and space salad for their dinner, and she adds that she'll use the last of their flour to make biscuits to go with it. Hmm, that sounds yummy. Uh, I wonder, though, does that space salad have any of those little hearts of cyclamen or perhaps just some little green onions in it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know, but that is so Lost in Space-esque, serving space salad. We never get the actual recipe, but I imagine space salad to be like a futuristic pill that has all the nutrients of salad, which you swallow. <laughs> hey, and then they say, there's your salad. Imagine how delicious the space steak will be, you know? Mm, I could just uh, imagine. Did, yeah. Well, remember, Criswell warned us in Plan 9 of Outer Space, we once laughed at the horseless carriage, the aeroplane, the telephone, the electric light, vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh at outer space. God help us in the future. And now we know why. <laughs> uh. Just then, John arrives back at the camp. Will tells his dad about the rusted-out old robot he discovered on the way back from fishing. John decides they should go back and investigate. He adds, they'll take their own robot along to check it out. But in the first of several uncharacteristic and evasive responses, the robot announces that it's not necessary for him to join them. He prefers to remain back at camp to clean and prepare the fish for their meal. Hmm. I thought that was an interesting choice of words, prefer, that the robot used. Did that strike you as odd? Well, it may have been a humorous reference to the famous Herman Melville story, Bartleby the Scrivener, if I'm pronouncing Mm. that right. It's about a Wall Street lawyer who hires a new clerk who works real hard until he gradually refuses to do anything by saying, I would prefer not to. And the lawyer can't get rid of this guy, so he eventually ends up moving out of his office instead and just leaving the guy there, you know? (laughs) Damn those unions. Mm. That that did seem a little fishy. They didn't want to go to protect them. But on another level, he may have been trying to discourage any interest in the new robot. So from that standpoint, it kind of made sense. Yeah, he's definitely acting uh, funny at this point, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it struck Maureen as funny because she giggles and John sighs, All right, we won't take the robot. Maureen warns him to hurry because those biscuits will be ready in 30 minutes. He promises, then I'll be back in 25. (laughs) These little pleasant scenes are also a nice contrast to the danger that's brewing back in that underbrush. A little later, the professor and Will arrive back at the bushy area where the robotoid is standing, as mute as he first was. John makes a quick survey and declares that it's in very bad shape. Everything important is either corroded or broken. Will's disappointed. He thought it could be repaired. John asks, what for? After all, they already have a robot of their own. Will says if they got it working, they might find out who built it and left it on the planet. 
John's doubtful, based on the machine's apparent age and state, by now its memory banks are probably worthless. He then does his own Dr. Smith impression, saying, It's a mass of metal fit for naught. John's ready to get back for those biscuits, but before they do, Will asks if he can try to fix this old robot anyway. John allows it as long as the boy doesn't neglect his regular chores. That's just what my dad used to say. Will promises to get them done twice as fast, which causes Dad to reply, Don't worry about the fast, just get them right. Okay. As they leave, Will says to the still silent machine that he'll have him good as new in no time. You know, I was kind of surprised that know-it-all guy didn't even consider the possibility that this robot could be dangerous for a son to play with. We, we don't know anything about it. It could be a soldier robot designed to kill people or, or a defective robot that was abandoned because it's faulty and dangerous. I mean, the sky's the limit for danger, but, you know, heck, why not? Will can add this to his other dangerous hobbies like radioactive rock collecting, you know? Yeah, well, that's a good point you make. And even though by now our robot has really transformed Formed. There was a time when he was pretty dangerous, too. So you think that uh, John would have been a little bit more cautious about a strange robot like that, you know? Oh, yeah. Next, we see that Will must have finished all his chores because the robotoid is now on its back and Will is working diligently on repairing it. Silently standing on the other side observing is our robot. He's apparently there to assist in the job, but when Will asks the robot to switch on the energizer unit to give the machine power, the mute robot makes no response whatsoever. After a moment, Will gets up and confronts his uncooperative assistant. What's wrong with you today? Your audio unit gone bad? I mean, I have to ask you everything three times before you obey. I compute you well. Then what's wrong? This project is extremely dangerous. Now look, I'm not going to go through that again. I'm going to get this robot fixed and that's all there is to it. And I was a little surprised by that reaction. It seemed more than a little severe for Will to yell that way at the robot. What did you think? Oh, yeah. Now, if I reacted like that to my babysitter, my cheeks would really start getting tanned. (laughs) Mine too. The robot corrects the boy. Correction. Not robot. Robotoid. Now look, who cares what it's called? All I want to do is get it working. Our robot is a machine which performs as programmed. Our robotoid is a machine which goes beyond programming. It has a free choice. Good, bad, wrong, right, slow, fast, hot, cold, loud. All right, all right, just forget it. This explanation also has no effect on Will at all. He seems blinded to the potential danger by his desire to repair that machine. This is obvious because during the robot's explanation, Will has this half-listening look of impatience on his face, and when the robot finishes, he dismissively says that the robot's just jealous. Abandon this project. No, I know what's wrong with you. You're jealous. That's all jealous. Jealousy... A human emotion. I am a machine. Then what's wrong with you? I do not know. We're starting to see the robot is more than just a machine. One of the things that struck me about this exchange and this story in general is how far our benign robot has come from the first couple of episodes where he was Dr. Smith's deadly Frankenstein monster, ready to kill on command. And now he's becoming more of an emotional character. He's transforming into a caring member of the family. And that's going to be in stark contrast to the sinister robotoid, who's not just dangerous, but as we'll find out later, is an agent of an evil alien. Wow, did you say sinister robotoid? You know, I'm detecting some microaggressions against metallics. Now, (laughs) 
if you gave this new robot as much time to adapt to, as the B9 robot got, maybe he'd become a new member of the family and everyone would love him as well. You're just being prejudiced against him because of the color of his tin. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, Kurt. I know, I know. But uh, he does look a lot scarier than our ro- <laughs> robot yeah, to me. Will returns to his work asking our robot if he's not jealous what's wrong with him. He doesn't know. Will says he's going to give him a complete tune-up after he's done with the robotoid. Oh, boy. You need a good mechanical tune-up. When I'm finished with him, it'll be your turn. As you wish. I will turn on the Energizer now. I am not jealous. It is a human emotion. I am not jealous. It is a human emotion. I am not jealous. It is a human emotion. I am not jealous. It is a human emotion. Yeah, the way he kept repeating it makes it pretty obvious that he's really trying to convince himself more than anyone else. Exactly. You know, another thing that struck me is that Lost in Space was way ahead of the game in giving emotions and AI-like cognitive ability to a computer or robot. It reminds me of ideas that would later be featured in other sci-fi franchises like 2001's HAL 9000 or even Star Trek The Next Generation's robot character Data. Point of order, if you read the original Day the Earth Stood Still, which was from back in the 1940s, you would have discovered that the robotoid was actually cognitive and had free will as well. In fact, uh... Not the robotoid, Gort, you mean? Well, I'm calling him a robotoid because he really was a robotoid. I mean, oh, by, okay. by this definition, the original story was called Farewell to the Master. In Clatu, the alien who appears with the eight-foot monster robot Gort is shot and killed, just like in the movie. But nothing can harm Gort, just like in the movie as well, who eventually decides to return to their home planet and report exactly what the people of Earth are all about. Now, an Earthling risks everything to sneak aboard Clatu's ship and explain to the robot that his master's death was an accident because, you know, he doesn't want the other planet to come and destroy them all. But Gort, who actually talks in the original version, his name is actually like Gannut or something that's different. Gort's a better choice. But Gort actually talks and he tells the Earthling that he misunderstands. It's the other way around. Klaatu was the servant and the robots are the masters. Now, uh, kind of creepy, isn't it, huh? Yeah. So that was like a short story that the, yeah. the movie was mm-hmm. based on? That's cool. So they were actually, you know, in control of the humans, and they had free thought, and, you know, everything that this Robbie the robot has, they had in spades. Oh, that is very cool. Okay. But your point still stands in the television movie realm. It was a new concept, but not for pulp uh, science fiction genre. Uh, Pulp science fiction, I'm learning, was way ahead of a lot of these franchises, right? Yeah, and for the most part, because they could afford to be. You know, when you stop and think about what our special effects were back in the 1950s, they were nothing. And they were only starting to get really good in the 1960s. So it took television and movies that long to be able to create the types of things that were being demonstrated in science fiction. Hmm, Fair point. Later, back inside the Jupiter 2, the family is enjoying a game of space chess, perhaps? (laughs) (laughs) Don asks Will how the work on the robotoid is going. He says he's repaired all the defective parts, but it still won't activate. Judy thinks it's a waste of time. Again, they already have a robot. Hmm. But, uh uh-oh, maybe not, because Marine notices that our robot has gone missing. Wonder where he could be. Will mentions that he's been acting strangely lately, and I notice the family is routinely using the pronoun he instead of it 
to refer to their good robot throughout this episode. They've probably been doing that before, but it just stood out to me in this story. Yeah, good call. John suggests that perhaps they better go look for him. Will has a feeling he knows where he is, back with the robotoid. Uh Uh-oh. Don's amused. Now they have a runaway robot on their hands. And since he's been acting strangely, they wisely decide to bring Dr. Smith along. Hmm. Maybe wisely and maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, you never can tell with Smith. Yeah. Leaving Maureen and Judy to finish the chess game, the men and Will head out to find the runaway robot. Next, we see our robot walking along through the nighttime rocky desert terrain back to the site of the Robotoid. And Bob May is again walking along, wearing the Bermuda short legs, with his sock feet cleverly hidden by some well-placed boulders in the foreground. I want to mention this before I forget about it too, Kurt. I really enjoyed the way Bob May was emoting, if you will, in that robot suit. For example, he paused to say his lines. It's going to be later dubbed in by Dick Tufel, but... Bob May was actually saying the lines on set and flashing the little light on his chest. And then there's other times he would just not say a word in response, but also with body language, like turning his radar ears or raising or lowering his bubble. There were a lot of those obvious moves he made and many more subtle ones that I never really picked up on until I watched the episode a second time. And I really really think that added to the character's portrayal. Yeah, that raising and lowering of the bubble is one of my favorite expressions. <laughs> it's like a little puppy, you know, raising his ears when, you, mm-hmm. when you're offering him a treat. I love it. Or Spock raising the eyebrow. You know. Oh, yes, yes. Very iconic. Well, our robot is on a mission because he's talking to himself again. He's saying, it must be done. It must be done. We see next the search party members, including Dr. Smith, flashlights in hand, are following the robot's tracks through the darkness. Smith is in an ill temper because he's scowling and calling out, Where are you, you miserable mass of metal? Mm, He must have been woken up from a well-deserved nap or something. (laughs) He's very mad. Well, they haven't found him yet. When we cut back to the robot, he's finally reached his destination. Again, very sinister. That nighttime black and white photography, combined with that Gort theme again, really gets you on edge. The Robotoid is now back upright on his feet, but still standing unmoving as a stone. The robot isn't fooled, though. He speaks to the unresponsive alien machine. The robot knows that the Robotoid is aware, and has been for some time. The Robotoid makes no move or sound. It's just waiting like a spider for the right moment to strike. Getting no response, Our robot declares, very well, he will do what he must. He grasps a short-handled sledgehammer and raises it to strike the robotoid. Just so we can't misunderstand his intentions, the robot says, I destroy. Here's a question, Kurt. Why wouldn't the robot use his electrical charges from his claws to destroy the robotoid? Maybe he just wanted to salvage some parts and was afraid the electrical charge would fry everything. You know, he mentioned Mm. there were some valuable parts there inside. Or maybe he just wanted to go medieval on that other robot, you know, either way. Mm, Indeed, yeah. Well, we're going to find out he doesn't like that (laughs) robotoid very much. But before the hammer falls, we hear from off screen a familiar voice shouting, Stop! Stop at once! I command you, you monster, you unspeakable insult! You unspeakable insult. (laughs) At which point the robot drops the sledgehammer right in front of Dr. Smith's feet, but offering 
no explanation. How dare you tune me out, you metallic murderer? Dr. Smith demands an explanation, but the robot finally responds by taking the fifth. And this just enrages Smith further. He threatens to pull the robot's power pack out for a month. John stops Smith before he can do it, which... (laughs) which causes Smith to warn, Spare the punishment and spoil the robot. Mm. And John insists that they're dealing with a machine, not an emotional child. Will's not so sure about that based on his recent behavior, but John's not buying it. He insists the robot is a piece of scientific equipment, not a creature of flesh and blood. Oh, the ignorance of science. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the ignorance of science. Then Don tries his luck asking the robot if he had orders to come back there, but no one gave him any orders. Then how does he explain his actions? He can't answer. You mean you won't. (laughs) Don Don asks why the robot wants to destroy the robotoid. He replies, I do not like it. John retorts that hate is not an emotion you possess. I do not like it. Don tries to reason with him, saying, The robotoid doesn't present any danger to you, but instead of explaining the very real danger, he just repeats again, I repeat, I do not like it. Yeah, you just want to cry out and help that poor robot explain. You know, if he just said, I sense danger, danger in this robot, do not trust it. But no, he's he's tape-tied and he can't explain himself. Yeah. And like you kind of mentioned before, everyone else is is very complacent. Even before it's activated, he's just an innocent, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's confusing to the professor, but Smith just thinks the robot's being stubborn, and he warns him. Just you wait, you tin-plated fraud. (laughs) I'm not through with you. Poor old robot. He's always Smith's favorite punching bag. With the act coming to a close, and since it's getting late, the professor recommends that they return to the ship. Will asks if the robot will go along. Smith would be happy for him to stay out until he rusts. When finally commanded to return to the Jupiter, the robot says he computes and will obey. Our robot sullenly rolls out of the scene with the rest of the men following. But then, Kurt, the camera shifts its gaze to that robotoid that's been silently taking this all in. Once everyone's out of sight, we hear it start to mechanically click back to life. Its computers activate, and the antennas on its head begin to revolve. Then before we go to break, the alien machine deliberately bends over at the waist, and that small panel opens up yet again and fires another laser blast. This time at the sledgehammer the robot dropped on the ground. The hammer disappears in another flash of flames, but it does leave a nice impression in the sand. We'll have to wait until we get back from station identification to find out what happens next. Yikes. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, we see the robot standing outside the Jupiter 2 hatch. Will walks out and informs him that they're going for a walk. To the robotoid? With a tone of disdain in his voice. (laughs) Yes, to the robotoid. Where else? He explains that he has a new idea how to get the machine working. The robot interjects that... Will's plans for the robotoid are of no interest to him. Will still thinks there's something wrong with the robot and can't understand why Dr. Smith would program him not to like other robots. The robot quickly corrects him, Robotoid! Will's still not listening to the poor old robot. Will says, whatever you call him, the robot's making a big problem over nothing. Then he gets an idea to give our robot a little brainwashing session like the commies did with our POWs in Korea and Vietnam by having him repeat the phrase, The robotoid is a harmless machine. It represents no danger. 
But the robot responds with, as Dr. Smith would put it, a golden silence. Will loses his patience with his stubborn companion and says, he'll go work on the robotoid alone. The robot changes his position at this point and says, stop, Will Robinson. He'll go back with Will. After all, he may need protection. The boy says, he's big enough to take care of himself. But the robot replies, true, but I'm a little bigger. Will then offers an olive branch back to the robot, telling him that from now on, instead of saying his full name, he should call him Will. They've known each other long enough to drop the formalities. And the robot seems touched by this, and he gladly agrees. And I did like the way that little scene ended. We can clearly see that the robot is actually going through some serious moments of inner conflict. And we share in his frustration that his warnings about the dangers of the robotoid are being continuously ignored almost until it's too late. Uh, If only we'd be a little more articulate in explaining that danger. I mean, I'd be afraid of owning a used gun if I knew it actually had free will and could think for itself, especially Mm. if I didn't know who the previous owner was or what happened to them. Mm. That's a good point. I mean, this is a walking, talking weapon, and, you know, their robot's got a weapon, so why should they not assume that this one doesn't? Good point. Back at the Robotoid site, Will is doing some last-minute lubricating of the machine's moving parts using an oil can that could have been used on the Ten Man from The Wizard of Oz. We finally reach the moment of truth because Will announces that if the Robotoid doesn't work now, he never will. As our robot silently observes standing behind him, Will commands the Robotoid to speak. But at first, nothing new happens. No mechanical sounds, no flashing lights or spinning antennas. Nada. Maybe failure is a success. Mm Mm-hmm. Our robot is ready to call it a day and start disassembling the robotoid. Will asks what he's doing, and the robot says he will disconnect fusion wires. The parts in the machine may prove valuable. Hmm, just like you said. Just at that moment, there's a quick beeping sound. Will asks if the robot heard something, and he fibs and says, no. But before those fusion wires can be pulled, he beeps again, and Will is ecstatic. He's activating! Ah. Uh. Poor B9, he was so close, yet so far away. (laughs) I know. Sensing danger, our robot moves back around to a position where he can defend his friend if necessary. Perhaps he's hearing that Gort theme like we are, Kurt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Will attempts to communicate with the robotoid, saying, Hello? The machine now responds with a slow mechanical, Hello! Then Will asks if he can walk, and demonstrates by taking a few steps. The robotoid repeats the word, walk, then imitates Will's actions by taking a few steps. This had a very Frankenstein feel to it, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Will's very excited because now he can take the robotoid back to the Jupiter 2. He tells the robotoid to follow him. And again, the machine repeats the word, follow, then does so. I mean, Will said earlier, you know, he's activating. He could have said, it's alive. (laughs) It's alive. (laughs) Well, they head in the direction of the ship, and our robot is left lingering behind for a moment. Kurt, it appears that the robotoid is functioning normally. So far, so good? No, says the robot to himself. Bad. Very bad. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, based on that Gort theme, we can assume that B9 is right, and Robbie is one bad hombre. I would agree. Back at the Jupiter 2 campsite, some time has passed. Both Will and Dr. Smith are flanking the robotoid, and there's a pile of computer tapes, (laughs) tapes, I love it, stacked on the table in front of them. 
will tell Smith if they feed the machine any more data, his memory banks are liable to explode. But Dr. Smith's not worried in the least. By the look on his face, he's already taken a shine to their new mechanical servant. As he smiles, Smith claims that the capabilities of this new cybernetic marvel are limitless. He's simply devouring knowledge. (laughs) Then his expression changes, and he indulges in one of his favorite pastimes, heaping scorn on our poor old robot. Compared to the ability of that broken-down old has-been over there, he's practically a genius. (laughs) There's a quick cutaway to the robot, who's standing a few yards away, quiet as a church mouse. (laughs) You know, I sometimes think that Smith is so mean to the robot because he's a stand-in for Major Wes. Because... If you can't threaten Don, you can bully the robot in his stead. Well, he definitely needs someone to pick on. (laughs) Yeah. He's one of those kinds, you know. Will tells Smith he shouldn't talk like that in front of him, even if he is only a robot. He hears you and has a reaction. Indeed. Next you'll be telling me he's thin-skinned. Yeah. (laughs) Just then, Professor Robinson and Don walk up and ask, how's it going? Splendidly would be an understatement, and Will adds that it scares you how fast he learns. Hmm, it scares you. Should scare you, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don asks if they've had any more trouble with our robot. Smith informs the group that he's come to an understanding with their robot. Either he behaves or Smith will dismantle him and use the parts to build a motor vehicle. Then glancing at the poor thing, he adds, (laughs) On second thought, I may do it anyway. (laughs) John cautions that before they tear apart one robot, they better make sure the new one is working properly. And right on cue, the robotoid does his best mechanical Eddie Askell routine, announcing that he's ready to serve them. He's learned much already. In a short time, he will know much more. Hmm. That's a lovely dress you're wearing, Miss Robinson. And Judy, your hair is very fetching. (laughs) Thank you, Eddie. Uh, Yes. Smith decided it's time to put on a little demonstration of sorts to showcase just how superior this new robot is. Will's a little unsure, but Smith can't resist the opportunity to rub it in a little more right in front of our old robot. Just then, Mom and Judy walk up, and Smith asks if he can borrow Maureen's watch. She's a little reluctant at first, but Smith assures her that no harm will come to it. So, curious to play along for the moment, she hands over her watch to the doctor. And with all his showmanship skills, he holds up the piece, announcing that here's one watch in good working order. Don pipes in to skip the circus ballyhoo, Smith, and get on with it. So then, he drops the watch and crushes it under his boot heel. The ladies gasp, and Judy even says that was awful, especially because it was an anniversary gift from Dad. But not to worry, grinning from ear to ear, Smith picks up the piece, which we can see is in very poor condition indeed. But he also has a quick cure. He places it on the table, turns to the robotoid, and announces, The watch is broken. You know what to do. I hear and obey. And then the robotoid passes its three-fingered hand over that broken watch. And with the help of a eh, a little less than convincing edit, the broken watch is replaced with a completely repaired, cleaned, and polished piece. The satisfied smith graciously hands it back to the dear lady. Marine looks at it and announces why it even has a brand new crystal. Everyone is suitably impressed as Will chimes in that the robotoid can help them repair lots of things. It's like the wishing machine all over. Mm. Don can use its help fixing the chariot, and Judy wonders if the robotoid darn socks. Mm. (laughs) 
Robotoid announces that they only have to ask and he can provide. It sounds almost too good to be true, but at that moment, our robot comes scooting over, holding a bucket of vegetables from the garden. Wow, I was really feeling sorry for him now. Yeah. Maureen says, thank you, and the robot announces that he is pleased to help her. As the robot scurries off, Smith is following him with his eyes with an expression you'd give to a wedding crasher. Yeah, B9 seems very pathetic at that point. He's reduced to picking vegetables like an illegal alien. Bad, very bad. Next night has fallen. The camera is following the robotoid as it's walking through the deserted rocky terrain. It passes for a moment out of view behind this really large boulder, and then when it comes out the other side, it's holding a small, round, dish-sized device in its hand. That was a neat little trick. The robotoid sets the device down on the ledge of that rock formation, and then an image appears of what we can now see is a communication screen. It's a very strange-looking face of some kind of alien. Did you get a good look at that alien overlord, Kurt? Yeah, well, like I said, to me, it looked more like a bear mask, but I'm willing to go along with the dog uh, motif. And even though you could see the eyes inside the mask and the fact that his jaws never moved when he spoke, it was still still cool watching him appear on that telescreen and scheme such evil schemes with Robbie. (laughs) Yes, yeah. He's apparently been waiting for the Robotoid's call because he immediately states, It has been many years since we left the planet. We presumed you to be lost. The Robotoid announces that until recently he was without function, but an Earth boy repaired him. Ah, so now there are Earth people on the planet. I thought that was interesting how he only called it, you know, the planet. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Or that he knows about Earth. I guess we're famous. Yeah, that's a great point. Yes, he's aware of Earth. Hmm. The Robotoid says several Earthlings and asks his master if he's interested in them. Yes, indeed. We have great need for new subjects for our experiments. (laughs) Yes, we need to vivisect many creatures from different varieties of races. (laughs) Well, the robotoid was certain he would be, and it's already taken measures to secure them for his master. This excites the alien who replies, Very good. You have acted with foresight and vision, as always. The Robotoid says once the Earthlings have been rendered harmless, he will contact his master again. Very good. Then I will come and take them. With that, the alien signs off. And I've absolutely always loved that whole scene. But it is a very, very malevolent scene, isn't it? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Can it be done? (laughs) Wait. Not yet. (laughs) Now, wouldn't it be funny if the aliens do come and they heard up the uh, Robinsons that they're all expected to be chopped up into little bits? It's sort of like, okay, we're going to show you two diagrams and you're to point out which one is wavy and which one is straight. You know, they just <laughs> have them run through all these psychology experiments. Okay, thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> Well, next, as if we didn't feel sorry enough for the robot, our next cut is back at the campsite, where the robot is standing watch alone in the dark, lights flashing, arms again stretched out as if he might have to fire his electrical bolts at that evil robotoid at any minute. Inside the ship, John and Marine are staring out the viewport to watch him. It's a softly lit shot of the two of them standing next to each other. Marine says she doesn't know why, but she wishes Will hadn't activated the other robot, even though she agrees with John that it's likely to be a great help. John ribs her a little for being a real softie, and he tells her that Will said the same thing. 
Maureen calls him out, telling him not to put on such a big, strong man act with her. She knows he feels just as sentimental as they do about their robot. Don't you think this shows just how far the character's been changed since the start of the series, Kurt? Oh, yeah. It's a, he's such a cute little robot. You know, he's, he's really grown up a lot from the days when he was just trying to kill us all. <laughs> God bless him. Yeah, well, everybody has something to be ashamed of in their past. <laughs> yeah, everybody's been naughty at some time or another in this youth, so forgive yeah. and forget. Uh, John admits with a laugh that yes, yes, he supposed she's right. He does care as well. As Act 2 is nearing a close, we quickly shift from that warm mood inside the ship to a creepy night scene outside in the rocky terrain. It gets creepier when the robotoid comes lumbering into the frame. It approaches our robot and stops facing just a few feet away, and then announces that it's time for a little chat. Uh Uh-oh. Whenever I hear the phrase, we need to talk, I sense danger, danger, danger. (laughs) Yep, that's usually a tell, isn't it? Yeah. The robot says to proceed... The robotoid informs him that his services are no longer required. The robot objects, but the robotoid gives our robot a reality check, along with a string of insults. Now that I have full operational capabilities, your services will no longer be required. I am needed by the Robinsons. I was also here first. The principle of first come, first serve is an old-fashioned concept. My programming has been extensive. My memory banks contain much knowledge. In comparison to myself, you are very ignorant. I have 110 computer units which all function perfectly. You are obviously of a very primitive design. From now on, I will serve the Robinsons. In all ways, I am superior to you. Since there is no need for two of us, You will leave. The Robinsons belong to me. I will not give up my family. The choice is not yours. Already you know what is happening. The Robinsons prefer me. In a short while, I will be indispensable to them, while you will be relegated to the role of an inactive bystander. You are mistaken. Your efforts will be denied by me. You are even more stupid than I first computed. My path is clear. Nothing can stop me. I am very strong. I can stop you. I am armed not only with superior mental powers, but superior weapons as well. You will be stopped. I can destroy you easily, foolish, sad machine. There can be no fight between us. It would not be a contest. You need a small demonstration of my powers. You know, that robotoid might be in the mafia because it's got a spicy mouth and it talks with its hands. And it isn't afraid to break some bones or at least fire off a quick laser stun to show the robot who's boss. Ah, the mafia, huh? Well, you know, Robbie does have a black hand, but I don't know that I would describe his voice as soprano. How about you? No, but that would be funny, wouldn't it? (laughs) To have a Tony Soprano voice on that? Yeah. Well, if it's a really high voice, it could still be soprano. Before we go to break, we see the pitiful side of our robot completely deactivated and doubled over. 
But even though he's clearly unconscious, that sinister robotoid just can't resist verbalizing one last dig before he lumbers away. A small reminder of what is in store for you if I am provoked. Wow. I hope we see the robot looking better when we come back from commercial break, Kurt. Oh yeah, it looks like he's in bad need of the Energizer Bunny, but you know, the way the family is so clueless about the, their danger is so nerve-wracking. Yeah, it really is. Lost in Space, brought to you by... I can be any kid on the block! Oh, yeah! Yeah! They're slugging it out. A left to the jaw, and... Oh, my block is knocked off! But you can press it right back on. It's Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Press this lever. He throws a right. The other a left. Knock his block off. You're the winner! Well, next time... You can Rock'em Sock'em with the Rock'em Sock'em Robots by Marks. When we get back from the break to start Act 3, it's the next morning, and our robot is still knocked out cold from the previous night's encounter with the robotoid. Will and Smith have come upon him, and Smith's convinced that he's just being an inept gold bricker. Wow, he's one to talk. Yeah, it takes one to know one. Mm hmm. Will says he seems to be all right mechanically and can't understand why he's all out of power. He probably collapsed from sheer laziness. <laughs> then Professor Robinson and Don arrive on the scene asking what happened. In my opinion, the machine is suffering from old age. Smith's really on projection steroids today, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Don notices some burn marks on the robot's chest plate that look like an electrical strike of some kind. They straighten the poor robot up, and then after a moment, he starts to regain his functioning, although he seems to be in a weakened state. John asks for a report on what happened, but for some reason, the robot refuses to answer. Why did he refuse, Kurt? Maybe it's misguided machismo, or he didn't want to be a tattletale, but with everyone's life in the balance, they really deserve to at least know about the robot's deadly laser blaster. You know, come on, at least mention that. I know. That would be nice to know. (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, this failure to comply causes Smith to heap more scorn on the robot. He accuses him of arrogance, which is ironically another human behavior that you wouldn't expect from a computer. Yeah, but you would expect it from Smith. It takes one to know one again. Mm, indeed. Before they can press the issue further, the friendly and cooperative robotoid lumbers into the area, carrying a bundle of blueprints. He bids the castaways good morning and announces that he's been studying the plans of the chariot and is ready to assist Don in getting it repaired. Isn't he a joy to work with, Kurt? Yes, he's so chirpy and cheerful. I hate robots like that in the morning. Just just heat ray my coffee and shut the hell up. (laughs) Well, Don is eager to start. The robotoid says that he doesn't require any assistance, but that Don's presence is welcome. Hmm. Smith has a delighted expression on his face that turns once more to disdain as he glances in the direction of our robot. I hope you're listening to this, you broken down has-been... Why is Smith being so cruel to the robot? He's not stupid. I mean, he's a doctor in intergalactic experimental psychology. Now, that's supposedly the scientific investigation of basic psychological processes such as learning, memory, cognition in humans and animals, and apparently in in robots in this case. But perhaps he's trying to psychologically challenge the B9 to surpass his current programming restraints. 
like the built-in barrier for killing human beings. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Smith is so mean to this robot. Who could blame the robot if the B-9 were to turn more into the HAL 9000 computer and start killing the entire crew like it did in 2001 in Space Odyssey? Robbie would be the least of their problems. And why doesn't anyone else step in and tell Smith to ease off? Will's the only one that's ever said anything about it. It's kind of pathetic, really. You know, Smith just can't help himself. He's always poking the snake, seeing if he can get any kind of rise out of the robot. As Don and the Robotoid head out to start working on the chariot, the robot asks in a very tentative tone if he can help anyone. Will can't think of anything at the moment. Neither can Professor Robinson. John asks Will if he wants to tag along while he checks on the remote weather station. Will pipes up that the robot could help with that, but John quickly replies that, Oh, no, 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 that task is much too complicated for the robot. Ouch, that hurts. Talk about making it clear you're no longer the favorite child. Well, you know, it's not that he's intellectually challenged as a robot. It's his physical handicaps that are are restraining him. You know, it's those fumbling hooks he has for hands. Imagine how difficult it is to do anything intricate when you have no fingers or thumbs. People often describe Robbie as having three fingers, but that's not really accurate. He has two fingers and a thumb. And that opposable thumb makes him a million times more capable than B9, who can't even play chess without an adapter. Mm. Yet somehow he can play the guitar. I never figured that one out. (laughs) Before they leave, Will tries to soothe our robot's pride by telling him not to worry. There'll be plenty of other things he can help with later. Then we get to one of my favorite all-time Smith and robot interactions. Now that they're alone... The grinning doctor saddles up to the crestfallen and scorch-marked robot and proceeds to partake in his favorite pastime, heaping more abuse on the robot. Do you need any help, Dr. Smith? There are many things which need to be done, but unfortunately you are incapable of doing any of them. No one requires my services anymore. An astute observation. You, sir, have reached the end of the line. The joyride is over. I had planned to redesign you possibly into a pleasure vehicle, but I think you would be substandard even as that. What is my course of action? A quick departure seems a very good choice. Are you sure there is no other solution? None whatsoever. Goodbye. Then I will go. Say goodbye to the others for me. I will. Goodbye. Especially Will. Yes, yes, yes. Goodbye. Farewell, Dr. Smith. I detest drawn-out departures. Go and get it over with. Yes, get it over with. Yes! Having been banished from camp so many times himself, Smith must have taken particular delight in getting to do it to someone else. And it's one of my all-time favorite Dr. Smith lines. You've reached the end of the line. The joyride is over. I had thought of redesigning you into a pleasure vehicle, but I'm sure you'd even be substandard at that. <laughs> the joyride is over. <laughs> I love that. It was such a pleasure working with the Robinsons. <laughs> oh, yes. Especially you, Dr. Smith. <laughs> After that, the robot shuffles away to who knows where. We switch back to the Robinson campsite. The family is seated around the table, and Professor Robinson is standing beside the robotoid as he asks if there's anything else they need him to do. Not at the moment, so it informs them that it will retire until needed again and lumbers out of the campsite. The Robinsons seem to be both amused with the Robotoid's formal manner of speaking and impressed with the efficiency with which it has been serving them since its arrival. They all take their turns sharing their experiences of how the Robotoid has helped. 
Moraine's practically a lady of leisure. Judy can't imagine how they ever got along without it. And Don's setting new speed records getting the chariot repaired. Everyone is thrilled with the robotoid. Everyone except Will, who has this worried expression on his face. And when he finally speaks, he says that he doesn't like him. Hmm. He wishes that he'd leave and never come back. Dad has to remind Will that, well, he's responsible for the robotoid being there. Will's sorry that he ever decided to fix it. And he states that their old robot was just as good as the robotoid. That's when Don puts his foot in his mouth by responding with the obvious but insensitive fact that, well, there's no comparison. The robotoid is far superior. Yeah, thanks, Don. When Judy gets old and wrinkled, don't ever invite Penny to come around and visit, or that unfiltered mouth of yours is <laughs> is really going to cause some fireworks in your marriage. Well, it causes some fireworks here because it provokes an angry outburst from Will. He says, that's not true. You ought to be ashamed of yourself saying bad things about our friend. John stops Will from going further, and Will checks himself, asking to be excused. Notice that Will called the robot his friend. That was touching, and I have to admit, I didn't notice that then, but I'm impressed to realize it now. Oh, yeah. When he leaves the table, Don realizes his mistake and admits that he didn't realize how much Will cared about the robot. Maureen and John both understand Will's feelings, mentioning that they owe him their lives. Yeah, he saved their lives after he failed at murdering them all, but hey, that's water under the bridge. (laughs) Don quickly relates that he's not their worry anymore because Dr. Smith told him that the robots disappeared alone in the desert. Judy's upset at this. They can't leave him out there. The weather will destroy him. And the scene ends on a down note as Maureen says that she knows robots don't have feelings, but it's almost as if, unneeded, he disappeared to destroy himself deliberately. Later that night, we see the sinister robotoid entering the hatch of the Jupiter II, making a quick scan of the area. He creeps towards the weapons locker. Will Robinson happens to climb up the ladder from the lower deck, noticing the robotoid reaching his hand inside the restricted area. At that moment, Will surprises the machine, asking what it's doing there. Turning around, we see that the machine has a laser pistol in its hand. Addressing Will as Mr. Robinson, it explains that it was checking to see if everything was all right before retiring for the night. Will coldly informs the robotoid that everything's fine, including the guns. The robotoid silently hears and obeys by returning the pistol to its place. Will continues to lecture the machine that it's not allowed to touch the weapons and that it should already know that. The robotoid claims that it merely wished to inspect the weapons before cleaning them the next day, but if he objects, he won't touch them. Hmm. Will's not buying that fishy story, replying that it better go. The robotoid makes a move towards the hatch, then stops and turns back to face Will. Then it baits Will by asserting that he doesn't like the robotoid, does he? Go ahead, you can speak freely. The truth will not hurt me. Will unloads on the machine. He doesn't care how smart or helpful it is. He doesn't like the robotoid or trust it, and he never will, even if it stays there for a hundred years. The robotoid responds by stating that the others appreciate his help. Will replies, then do things for them and stay away from me. As you wish, Mr. Robinson. Will then yells to stop calling me Mr. Robinson. Just don't talk to him at all, forever. Yes, sir. Good night, sir, says the robotoid as he turns and departs, knowing in no uncertain terms that Will's not fooled by his Eddie Haskell act. And I thought that sir was said with more than a little tone of contempt in it. What about you, Kurt? Yes, syrupy contempt with a cherry on top. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The Robotoid bends over to exit the Jupiter 2 hatch and then leaves. Later that night, Will is out searching through the rocky desert for his friend, the robot. There's a sudden familiar sounding pssst. Will asks where he is, and he says, of course, behind this rock. (laughs) Will tells the robot he's been looking all over for him and asks the robot what he's been doing. Still sporting his bruises from the encounter with the Robotoid, he bluntly says that he's been trying to commit cybernetic suicide by overloading his power cells and memory banks, but turns out it was impossible. Will's deeply upset at this revelation and relieved that the robot's too protected by circuit breakers to hurt himself. The robot says that it's just one more human characteristic he's been cheated out of. The robot then begins to warn Will about the Robotoid, then stops mid-sentence, alerting Will that his enemy is approaching. The Robotoid? Negative. Doctor Doctor Smith. Then we can hear Smith calling for Will somewhere in the distance. The robot says that Dr. Smith may still want to convert him into a pleasure vehicle. Will promises not to let that happen. Then indulging in some self-pity, poor old robot tells Will that if he does become a golf cart, he hopes that Will will ride him occasionally, and he also promises to try very hard not to be substandard. It's like our robot suffering from PTSD after being beat up physically by the robotoid and verbally by Dr. Smith. I'll say. Where's the cyberbullying campaign when you need it, you know? Absolutely. Will demands that he cut out all that kind of talk, but the robot merely tells him goodbye, adding, Beware of the robotoid. He turns and bids Will a last farewell, departing just before Dr. Smith arrives on the scene. Turns out Smith was looking for Will to help locate the robotoid, who failed to keep an appointment for Smith's back massage. (laughs) Will's trying to get a word in to tell him about the robot's warning, but Smith isn't giving the boy a chance. He won't hear a single derogatory word about that friendly servant of man, and he hustles Will along to the ship. Next, we cut to the Robotoid, who's alone in the rocks with his round iPad. Apparently, he's going to do a little FaceTime session with his master again. The screen flickers on, and there's old Dogface again. He's been waiting to hear from his mechanical servant. The Robotoid says it's the first chance he's had to communicate. Listening to this scene, now I'm certain that the voice of the Robotoid is Bramley, a.k.a. Mr. Nobody, because he's got the same, maybe even a little bit more pronounced staccato delivery of his lines as before. I mean, it it sounds pretty identifiable to me. Yeah, you know, and it's rather odd because as Mr. Nobody, he didn't really sound that great, but he's really good in this part. It's a perfect match. I like it. I like it a lot, yeah. We get a better close-up of that alien, though, and like you said, it's pretty obvious. I think it's a mask, but it's a cool-looking mask, so I I thought that creature effect was pretty good overall. And I'm always a sucker for those evil telescreen scheme scenes, you know. (laughs) There's some of my favorite plots in the Star Wars as well. Yes, yes. Can it be done? (laughs) He will join us or die. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like that dog-faced alien's lines. He's even got a little reverb on it, which adds to the menacing mood. How does your work progress? Mm -hmm. Everything is almost ready. All goes very smoothly. Hmm. That is a most welcome report. You know... (laughs) 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 The Robotoid then lets it slip that the Earth Boy is suspicious, and this could lead to a problem. The Alien Master warns it not to allow anything to interfere with their plans. Robotoid assures his master that if necessary, he will destroy the boy. Good. (laughs) Good. Good. (laughs) That's better. (laughs) The Robotoid signs off, saying that his boss will hear from him again. 
soon. Yes. The next morning, the others are also having some issues with the Robotoid's handiwork. Outside the ship, Don's scratching his head as he stares at a piece of equipment. When John rushes up with alarming news, every weapon in the Jupiter 2 is missing, and Will saw the Robotoid sneaking around the night before. Don's news isn't any better. The chariot engine is missing some vital parts. Also missing is that too-good-to-be-true servant, the Robotoid. It's not hard to connect the dots here. Then it goes from bad to worse as Maureen announces that the force field is not functioning either. But as you've said... Yeah, it's, it really is now. Everyone just keeps walking right through it. That should be the piece of equipment that Smith is heaping all his scorn on. <laughs> exactly. Smith chimes in to calm everyone down and defend his new best friend, the Robotoid. There must be a logical explanation. Come to think of it, that Robotoid does have more in common with Smith than the robot. Oh yeah, good call. (laughs) The only thing they don't share is the Robotoid's work ethic. Also, Smith is delighted to remind everyone that this time, he's not responsible for their predicament. Will volunteers to take the blame for this mess. After all, he did repair the Robotoid. John puts a fatherly hand on his shoulder, reassuring him that he had no way of knowing this would happen. The others admit they were all taken in by him, all except their robot. Smith asks how to rectify the error. Don answers they have to find the alien robot. Just then, we hear from off-screen, the Robotoid announced, That will not be necessary. As the act is drawing to a close, the Robotoid lumbers into camp, then begins to explain things to the castaways. But it isn't what they wanted to hear. John and Don demand that it return their equipment. The mechanical menace refuses, adding, They can no longer give orders. Now there's a new sheriff in town. The men glance at each other, but before they can make a move, the Robotoid turns its torso slightly, and that handy panel at its waist snaps open, firing a beam at a large stone in the sand, which instantly disintegrates in yet another flash of flames and rock dust. Oops. Well, that's going to leave us in suspense until we get back from the break, Kurt. Yeah, I hope today's syndicators don't use that opportunity to advertise any of those frozen yogurt robots during the commercial. I mean, that could really backfire. <laughs> Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by... Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. When we return to start Act 4, the castaways close ranks as the Robotoid states that they have been warned. He has no wish to harm them, but will not tolerate any hostile act. Marine demands to know what it wants from them. Nothing for itself, since they are weak and vulnerable creatures. But it ominously reveals that there are those who have need of them. That sounded dreadful to me, and from the look on the Robinsons' faces, it did to them as well. Yeah, if you thought humans were cool using dogs for experiments, just wait until you find out what the dogs have in store for the humans. (laughs) It's going to be really rough. (laughs) Oh, payback time. Now that they're defenseless, the Robotoid announces that he will inform those who have need of them, and they will come for them. Smith stays calm for a change, then begins to compliment the Robotoid's intelligence as an opening bid to negotiate. The Robotoid warns Smith to silence his senseless chatter, but Smith's not deterred. My dear sir, surely we can reach some sort of arrangement? We'd be most happy to do anything, within reason, of course. 
The others remained silent during the doctor's risky gamble, shooting some unsure glances in Smith's direction, then back to the machine. I was curious, what was he going to offer the Robotoid? Would it be Will and Penny, or would he actually throw in the entire family under the bus? You never know with Smith, you know. (laughs) That's a good point. You'd never know with Smith. The Robotoid loses patience with Smith's clumsy attempts at subterfuge, silencing him once and for all. I didn't think it would work, but it was nice to have the old Dr. Smith back. Yes, indeed. The Robotoid then orders them all inside the spaceship. Don whispers to John that they could just rush the machine. John tells him to wait for his signal. That's when Will makes a break for the exits, hightailing it out of camp. Maureen shouts to the Robotoid, don't you harm him. John pulls her out of the way, and then the two men attempt to overpower the Robotoid, but it just bats them aside like ragdolls. The resistance is futile, and it's over practically before it began. It did seem like a foolish move. In fact, that's what the Robotoid calls them. Fools for trying to subdue a machine whose power is 100 times greater than theirs. It is not to be challenged, but if they do, it will not be as lenient next time. Reluctantly, they submit to his demands and retreat inside the Jupiter II before the Robotoid's control unit weakens. Yeah, but you know, their ploy wasn't a complete failure because it distracted Robbie enough that Will was able to escape without harm. So at least one of them will potentially survive. Well, I guess two, really, because Penny has been noticeably absent all this time, right? I guess so, yeah. We see that running man, Will, sprinting through the rocky desert terrain next. He's out of breath, and he stops for a rest on a nearby rock, when, fortunately, our good old robot appears just in the nick of time. Will's super glad to see him and admits that he was right about the robotoid all along, but when he explains the dire situation that faces our family of space pioneers, the robot acts uninterested. After all, he's not only unwanted, he's been rejected. Now he's become so demoralized, it seems he no longer considers the Robinsons his family. Gee, I wonder why. Go away, you rusted out husband. I so detest long farewells. Well, and that's exactly right. And Will asks him, what about Dr. Smith? And of course, the robot feels rejected by him most of all. Then Will pleads that he's still his friend. Can he just help them defeat the robotoid for him? And this apparently touches the robot. He snaps out of his funk, agreeing to help Will and by extension, the rest of the castaways. What does he want him to do? But when Will says he needs the robotoid deactivated, the robot demonstrates how weak he is by shooting a very tiny electrical current from his claw. Will says he'd have to get very close to stop the robotoid with that and it's doubtful it would let him get that close. They both decide that they need to concentrate hard on a plan of action before the aliens come to take them all away. By the way, there was a very slight blooper in this scene. I hate to point these out, but I'd never noticed it before. Bob May's wearing the Bermuda shorts version of the rubber legs, and as usual, his sock-covered ankles are covered by some convenient rocks in the foreground, but there was a brief moment when the robot moves to a different location that you get a quick little glimpse of those black socks. Not that big of a deal, because most people probably never caught it, and as I admit, I never caught it before until I watched it several times for this podcast. Yeah, but did you notice how nice those socks look? You know, we've been beating up on Robbie all this time lately, but he does deserve credit for mending those socks just like judy asked thanks robbie (laughs) you may kill the rest of the family but we'll always have paris Uh, paris of socks that is uh, paris of socks (laughs) back at the ship don and john are staring out the main viewport trying to come up with a way to overpower the robotoid but bottle up inside the ship without offensive weapons or even defenses there are no good options at least will's free to move around like you said kurt but of course that's no comfort to mom just then They spot the enemy lumbering into camp, holding that round device, which, 
Professor Know-It-All instantly recognizes as an alien communication device. I guess he read ahead in the script. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I guess Don has been reading ahead, too, because he says it probably wants to get in touch with its alien master. Well, the Robotoid does phone home once more, and we get another good look at the dog-faced alien. The Robotoid gives a status update to the alien. He's now rendered the Earthlings harmless. Good. We shall leave immediately to to retrieve them. Ah, so now we know what breed of evil aliens they actually are. They're not-so-golden retrievers. (laughs) Then the Robotoid said something that had me scratching my head. He says, it will send out a homing signal that will lead them to the planet. Again, they don't seem to know this planet is pre-planus. They just keep calling it the planet. But why do they need a homing signal to find the planet? I mean, they said already they'd been there before. Did that strike you as odd, Kurt? Yeah, but, you know, that was many years ago, and it's pretty easy to forget, especially when you're a dog-type alien, and every year is like seven years. (laughs) 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 So it doesn't seem like an eternity. Uh, that's great. Well, for whatever reason, and I think we do know why, script reasons, the alien says, That is very good. We will need the homing signal to find you and the planet. Good boy. Good boy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the last we see of this interesting alien. He signs off without another word. I so detest long farewells. Mm. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Run along. You old husband. The joyride is over. <laughs> Next, we're back with Will giving the robot his final pre-combat briefing. Will stresses that the most important thing is for the robot to get as close as possible to the robotoid like we hadn't figured that out. The robot computes and then heads out. Back at the camp, it's high noon when the robot and Will walk in for a rendezvous with the robotoid. It's interested that Mr. Robinson has decided to return. Will claims he didn't want to, but the robot forced him to return as his prisoner. It takes the robotoid a moment to process this, and despite his earlier boasts about being able to sniff out treachery, he cautiously listens to the robot as he explains that he wants to join the winning side. Hey, maybe the robot is Italian as well. Don't they always wind up on the winning side in every war, Kurt? (laughs) Uh, Well, um, before we both get whacked by the mafia for that remark, let me just say that I reject all negative stereotypes about Italians, (laughs) including any suggestions that they have anything to do with the mafia. Okay, it's on the record. You're on your own on this one. The two cybernetic creatures are standing a few yards apart face to face, with Will between them, as we start to hear the music building to a slow countdown. The robot pours it on thicker, claiming that he owes nothing to the Earthlings. But as cousin machines, they are alike. The robotoid listens further, instructing Mr. Robinson to join the others, which he quickly does. When Will gets back to the ship, John asks what's going on. There's no time to explain. They better just hope it works. Although you are superior, we are both machines. I ask only to serve you. Your proposal is very interesting. And I really liked the pacing and the shootout at the OK Corral style of blocking we get to see here next, Kurt. Oh, yeah. yeah. The robot continues to ingratiate himself to the robotoid, which interests the alien machine. And between every compliment and pledge of fealty, he takes a couple of steps closer to the robotoid. But come no closer. I have computed you, and your memory banks do not scan. We shall be friends. I will prove myself. Stop where you are. This is a warning. 
By now, he's only a couple of feet away, and this brings a real final warning from the robotoid. For the last time, stop. There is no reason for alarm. As you have said, I am only a primitive, obsolete machine. I will destroy you. But our robot has an ace up his sleeve, or maybe it's up his trouser leg, because a small probe panel on his lower tread box flips open and begins to emit a clever smoke screen. This temporarily blinds the robotoid and us too, because both machines sort of disappear in a cloud of white gas. But we can hear and see some flashes from blaster bolts. With the entire family, except again Penny, watching from the ramp and Smith from inside the ship, the battle rages for a few nerve-wracking moments. They all fear the worst, but eventually, our barrel-chested old robot manages under the cover of that smoke screen to maneuver himself behind the robotoid and deliver a death blow even with his weakened electrical charges, rendering the robotoid, as Dr. Smith would say, dead as a coffin nail. And just so there's no doubt, the robotoid's last words are, You have destroyed me. And you know your opponent is dead when he uses his final breath of robot air to tell you that he's dead. (laughs) Will tells the family that the plan wasn't his, it was the robots. And Don quips, and I thought the robotoid was superior. Don's right, their robot may have been smaller and a primitive design compared to that robotoid, but he's shown that he had something more powerful, a heart full of devotion to his family. Or at least to Will. I mean, the rest of the family could die in canine experiments, especially Smith. (laughs) Well, it was a great moment of glory for the robot. He turns towards the ship as the whole family rushes out to express their gratitude. From the look on Dr. Smith's face, however, it's obvious he already knows he's got some crow to eat. The joyride is over. (laughs) You've reached the end of the line, Smith. The robot reports, mission accomplished, and displays humility, saying he's only the result of those who programmed him. John has a different take. Even though it doesn't make any sense, he says, you're more than a machine. And Will says, you're our friend. They want him back, and he has returned. Then the robot takes a look around. Hmm, there's one member of the group missing. Actually two, but, or maybe even three if you count Debbie. He tells the others that he needs to see Dr. Smith. They have much to discuss. Yeah. Oh, yes. And lucky for Smith, the robots used the last of his power bolts to destroy the robotoid, so maybe he'll make it through this conversation. <laughs> Great point. The last scene in this episode is a cute coda to a story that started out with a lazy afternoon fishing trip. Will runs out of the ship carrying fishing poles. He asks Dr. Smith if he wants to go, but he's already booked for the afternoon. He's made an agreement, and for once, he's keeping his word. That's when our good old robot rolls up announcing that he's ready for his daily wash, wax, and polish from a suitably contrite Dr. Smith. Turns out Smith's penalty is a two-week spa treatment for the robot and even allows that considering how badly he treated him, he's more than happy to oblige. Something tells me this will be long forgotten at some point. Oh yeah, I bet two weeks won't even last seven days, as we'll be sure to notice next week. Same time, same channel. The robot relaxes and gets to give Dr. Smith a little ribbing back, as a smiling Will observes. It's another one of those light-hearted endings, but it wasn't too silly, and I did enjoy it, Kurt. Me too. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on War of the Robots. 
Well, they had me from the moment they introduced the Robotoid and that great Gort music from the day the Earth stood still. But I noticed something that was kind of unusual about this episode that I haven't really experienced with the others, and that is that I actually enjoyed watching this one better the more that I watched it. Mm. I started to enjoy the sound of Robbie's voice more and the subtle gestures and reactions the two robots had with each other. And those scenes communicating with its master from the dog star. It was also mm. fun seeing someone other than Smith manipulate the family with such cunning and calculus. And the fact that Smith was totally fooled by the scheme just made it even more delicious. And that the robot did see it, but he was too inarticulate in order to express it. Or he didn't want to seem too jealous by pointing it out, even though he clearly was jealous. That was all fun, too. But I was a little uncomfortable seeing how hurt the poor bucket of bolts became, being driven to suicide by Smith's cruel comments, and that Will was the only one that ever said anything to try to stop him from from saying those things was kind of pathetic, too. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if you take a step back, you realize that the rest of the family was pretty okay with with the robot being replaced by the new guy. In fact, if the new guy hadn't been in league with the bad guys, they would have been fine just letting him disappear into the desert. And that was kind of sobering. Now, one plot point that was left kind of dangling was the alien's arrival on the planet. Once you send Mm -hmm. out a homing signal, the aliens know what direction the planet is. So the fact that the homing signal disappears, that just makes the distance of the planet uncertain. But as long as you stay on that vector, you're bound to get there sooner or later. But maybe they got distracted by a bouncing ball or some cosmic cat that took them off in a different direction. <laughs> Who knows? But I'm really glad you told us about Penny and why she was missing, because that was one gaping hole in the plot. Uh, but now that we know the reason, I completely agree with the rationale, and it, it's going to make that next episode all the more fun to watch. So uh, this particular episode is, well, uh, this is episode 20. We probably used up our top 10 by now, but, you know, I'd squeeze it in one way or the other. Maybe it's time to start talking about the top 20 because this was the top rated episode and it was definitely a lot of fun to watch. And like I said, it's uh, I-, I like watching it again and again. I was going to say also, for me, it's a top 10 episode. It's always been a favorite of mine. And I'm like you, I like watching it again and again. It, it does seem to get better. But I want to go back to something you just said. So your take was that he had sent the homing signal. You got that impression? Because I I thought he had not sent it yet, which was one of the reasons they made that whole big deal about sending out a homing signal. It was giving the the writer an out to say, well, why doesn't the alien come in anyway? Uh, So I'm not, I I, I may have missed that. I'm not sure. I like your interpretation of it. It didn't seem to me, I mean, we didn't go and see him go flip a switch, but, you know, where would he go and flip that switch? He's only got, he's only got that round telescreen and then his own body. So when he says, I'm going to send out a homing signal, I, I assume that he just throws a switch inside his computer brain and that's it. But yeah, uh, but I'll go with your interpretation of it because, you know, otherwise, like you say, where are they and why did they show up? And I guess you can even say if he did throw the homing signal, but then it, if it's inside his body, the moment that he's destroyed, that homing signal stops. And it's possible that the aliens say, oh, well, something must have gone wrong. There's no point in us going now. Fair point. Well, one little story I want to relate was something that Mark Cushman wrote about in his book. He said, For the final battle scene, Bob May was not in the robot suit. For some reason, by union rules, a stuntman had to wear the robot's costume when they shot that scene with the gas. Hmm. 
And since Bob May was an actor and not a stuntman, he wound up watching them film that from the sidelines. And this upset him greatly. By that point in the series, he'd become so self-identified with the character, he felt that everyone watching at home would be able to tell it wasn't, quote, the real robot, but a fake, as he called it. It was a bone of contention that stayed with him for the rest of his life and one that the cast members remembered forever. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, you know, I, I seem to recall reading in that Lost in Space Forever book a quote of Jonathan Harris remembering how Bob May strongly associated with that robot. And I get the feeling that as time went on from the, the series, the cast actually became closer. But this quote must have been taken a lot sooner because Jonathan was very dismissive of the whole thing. He says that Bob May would always come in and compare himself to the other cast members. He thought he was the robot. It was ridiculous. I kept wondering. <laughs> I had to throw him out of my dressing room finally, you know. So it, it, it sounded like, you know, he really did identify with that and that was probably the closest he ever came to stardom and you know especially with an episode like this you, you right. really can empathize with that it's sort of like everyone just sort of treated him like contempt he wasn't really an actor his voice got cut out and got replaced and that really bothered him the whole time he kept trying to get his voice put in there instead of dicks and of course for the rest of us even though we're empathetic even though we we feel sorry and would like to help him out I think it's fair to say nobody would have wanted to remove Dick's voice and replace it with anyone else's voice after we became attached to it like that. Absolutely not. Yes. Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. We open outside the ship where we see the wind is howling and there are flashes of lightning on the horizon. Rushing inside for cover, John and Don quickly determine that a severe cosmic storm is brewing, and fast. Don mentions it's a good thing that Smith installed all those storm arresters, but Judy says she saw them all still laying out in a pile. John turns to Smith, who's using a stethoscope to check his heartbeat, and demands to know whether he managed to get any of those arresters installed. From his confused answer, it's obvious he dropped the ball yet again. That's just when Judy reports that Penny is missing. John orders Smith to accompany him as they search for the missing child. Some distance away in a rocky clearing, Penny and Debbie are examining a beautiful, full-length alien mirror laying on its side. Then Dr. Smith manages to find them and tells her they need to get back before the storm hits. That's when Smith catches sight of the ornate mirror, which is decorated with a large bull's head at the top. He seems mesmerized by it for some reason. When Penny asks if it's valuable, he says, Oh no, no, it's absolutely worthless, adding, It just happens to be made of solid platinum. At that moment, the storm reaches a crescendo, and the three of them take cover underneath the mirror. That's when a violent bolt of cosmic lightning makes a direct strike on the mirror, which causes an explosive flash of flame and smoke. What's worse... That platinum bull's head begins to emit smoke from its nostrils, and its eyes begin to glow and flash. But before we can find out what this means, the freeze frame warns us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. So, Kurt, I guess we'll have to wait until then to find out if the three of them survived this brush with danger, and what significance does that crazy alien mirror represent? I'll be watching. Folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 21st episode of Lost in Space titled The Magic Mirror. Wow, Kurt, the countdown has started. Only nine more episodes left in season one. Yikes. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon.
Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.